All right, uh, t- take out your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, we have some ushers coming down front right now who would love to give you a copy. If you just slip up your hand um, real high, they'll give you one. Matthew chapter 19 is where we're going to spend uh, or stop for just a second. It's page 535 for those of you who have the Bible we're handing out. Matthew chapter 19. Keep a hand up, and the guys will find you here in the conference center. They will uh, make sure they take care of you. If you've been with us any time recently, you know we're going through a series called Doctrine. 13-week series, and uh, I think it's always good to come back and not necessarily review, but give you the big file folder tags so that you know where all these pieces go. Sometimes you can get overwhelmed with all the details and you get a little confused. Four basic buckets of thought we are talking about in this doctrine series. One is God, who God is, the Trinitarian God, the God who makes and creates, the God who makes us in his image, that God. And then right after we spent four weeks talking about God, we interrupted the story with with the fall of man, right? The rebellion of Adam and Eve who now transferred that, that sin nature to all of us. And so right there after God, we see the fall. The next four weeks, we talked about God's remedy to the fall, that God would make a promise in a covenant and that he would deliver on his promise by taking on flesh, coming to this earth, dying and rising again to give life and hope and peace and salvation to sinners like us. That was that third bucket. So we've got God, the fall, we've got God's remedy. And now these last four weeks, and we're in week 11 right now, we're talking about the implications of that gospel story. Last week we talked about the church, that God, um, this is his bride. This is the focus of his affections. Um, And we're on mission to look like him and to talk like him and to be a witness for him in this world. That was last week. Today we're going to bring another one, and that's the the topic of of worship. It's the second implication of the remedy of salvation. So before I do, I kind of have to set it up. Somebody in the last service said, don't be apologetic for this. And I wasn't intending to make it apologetic. I was just trying to make it a warning, right, so that you don't later come back and say, you know, you didn't prepare me for that. So I'm trying to prepare people for what what we got going on today. Let me, let me ask you this question before we get into our text. Uh, when is the last time you were offended in a sermon? Can you remember? Maybe, maybe you never were offended. I, I'm going to give you a, a kind of a, a way to see it coming, okay? Uh, whenever you talk about things that are close to home, close to the heart, is where the potential for offense comes in. Wherever the Bible in principle or in, in practical deals with things like our family, things like our freedom, things like politics or things like money, whatever, um, sometimes if they directly hit something we're weak in or some kind of value or some kind of idol in our life, we can take offense to that. Or at least we have the potential to it. Because those, those things that, that God addresses, those things that we don't talk about very often, those are the places where this sin of self and idolatry can get in and start managing that topic. And, and so today, I think, is one of those. Talking about worship has the potential to offend. And, uh, and I'll give you a couple reasons why. One is because it is so common for us to waste our worship. It is so, I won't have to do much work at all to make you feel like you blew it somewhere. Because worship is, the, is a thing we do all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You might not know it, but I'll prove it in a minute. We worship. The problem is we waste our worship, and it won't take much work at all to go, see, 
Look at what we do with it. The second reason why it has the potential to offend is because um, our hearts are idle factories, and it's subtle. They don't scream like golden calf on my shelf. They do other things. They look like good things, but they're still idols. So let me explain this idea of, of full-time worshiper. You and I were made as worshipers. We have no choice. It is in our spiritual DNA. God made us that way. In fact, if you've got the theology book, the Mark Driscoll book that goes along with our study, he, he, there's a quote in there that he, that he mentions, and I, I would like to read it. It says this about this particular part of worship. Worship is not merely an aspect of our being, but the essence of our being. As God's image bearers, we are continually giving ourselves away or pouring ourselves out for a person, cause, experience, achievement, or status. Sadly, as the doctrine of the fall reveals, much of how we pour ourselves out and what we pour ourselves into in worship is someone or something other than the Trinitarian creator God. We were created worshiping. Everyone worships all the time. Atheists, agnostics, Christians, and everyone in between are unceasing worshipers. Everyone, everywhere, all the time is always worshiping. While the object and the method of the worship vary, the act of worship doesn't. That's what God made us to do, to worship. The problem is when sin interrupts the relationship, the perfect relationship that man had with God in the garden, suddenly there were other, other, other options. There were thoughts that weren't right, good things that got in the way of a great thing, that constant trade out God for something smaller. I got to take care of my own security. I got to take care of my own happiness. I got to, and we just start filling in the blanks. And that's the, that's the issue of this full-time worshiper that gets confused on what he worships. To give us a definition, like a working definition of worship, he also mentions this, that worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am and all that I do and all, all that I can ever become in the light of a chosen or choosing God. So you and I worship all day long. The question is, what? What do you worship? And this is where it gets sneaky because our idols are really hard for us to see. In fact, if they weren't hard to see, they wouldn't be idols, really. They sneak in and, and do their damage. So let me give you the easiest explanation of sin and victory over sin. So I said this last hour, and everybody perked up like I had the magic pixie dust, but, it, but it's true. I'll give you the cure to sin right now. You do this, no more sin. Simply obey the first commandment. Have no other gods before God. Just do that, and it's all going to be good. The problem is, we don't. And therefore lies all the idols, all the things, sometimes good things that God makes, sometimes things that are worse than that, and they just get in and they confuse us. And the, the, the sin issue is breaking that first commandment to have no other gods. Let me give you a couple illustrations. That's where you are in Matthew 19. The story is about the rich young ruler. And most of us who've read any time of Scripture or been in church any time at all have read this. But it's a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about. Matthew 19, this rich young man interrupts Jesus' day with a question. Verse 16. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to, ent to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones, the man inquired. 
Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. Here's a very interesting story. The the man obviously has been close enough to Jesus, either in his messages or just in the crowd, that he heard that Jesus was offering something that he hadn't heard of before, this idea of eternal life. And here's a very, very, very good man, and I use that loosely. Here's a guy who is religious, keeps order, keeps the commandments, and he comes to Jesus and says basically, what do I do to have what you're talking about? And so Jesus, being God, goes through triage to try to deal with it. He says, well, listen, obey. And the guy just pulls out and says, yeah, I do. I do that already. I'm a good guy. What else do I have to do? And Jesus goes right to the top of the list of the Ten Commandments and says, okay, let's, let's start with number one, no other gods. Take all your money, all your stuff, all your wealth, sell it and give to the poor, then you can follow me. And the man's response was, was sadness. He left. Suddenly, the price of eternal life was too high because it had confronted, watch, it confronted his idol. His own security, his own joy, his own version of life was greater than the question he was asking. How do I add Jesus to my collection was what he was saying. But he didn't want eternal life, not at all costs. He simply wanted to add a little bit of of Jesus to his story. So let me ask you this question. And and this is where I pray that God interrupts with the Holy Spirit right now. Because I pace back there and pray before we come out. And there is no way to precisely deliver this accurately to everyone here and in the conference center unless the Holy Spirit doesn't do it. So here's the question I want you to be honest about in your own mind. What's yours? What's your idol? What is it? What is your idol? What is it that you can't live without? What what is the issue that makes you look like a fool because out of one side of your face you say, Jesus is all I want, he's all that I need, and the other side of your life is it's Jesus plus something. What is that Jesus plus something? What is it? Is it health? I meet people who are so overwhelmed with their condition with health that suddenly now that's become bigger than their devotion to God. I know people who are absolutely so committed to relationship that they trade in Jesus for relationship and people with money and people with all sorts of things. Kids can be an idol. People are so consumed sometimes with God's gifts of good things that they'd rather have the good than the great. And that's what this, this message is about. Here, here in this remedy of the gospel to sinners, life to dead people, there's implications, church. There's implications that God works on our lives and transforms our lives. And, and worship is one of the attitudes and demeanors and expressions. And worship, as far as obedience is concerned, is the biggest. I, I have enough conversations with people that, that I kind of know the buckets of where these Jesus plus things are. I have conversations with people that say, yeah, I want to obey God, but you don't know my wife. And it's funny, right? But it, those are true statements. I want, to obey, I want to obey God, but my husband's an idiot. He keeps doing, he doesn't do, and there's lists of reasons why. Because those failures, they justify disobedience over here. There are people who sleep around and sleep around and sleep around simply because they're so lonely. There isn't any version of Jesus for them that's greater than their need to have man fill that up. 
They're lonely and they, ch- they choose their own solution. They need more and more and more. And some is never enough. They want to be liked so desperately liked by people. Now people are an idol. And on and on it goes. So what's yours? What, what is your version of Jesus plus? Because the, the conclusion of the cross, God's remedy for sin is that he wants people to worship him in spirit and in truth, and it matters. It matters. And it's not enough. Let's say, let's just pray that God did something right now. And in the front of your mind, you're going, I know what it is. I know exactly what my idol is. It's that. Let's, let's say that that just happened. It's not enough just to identify it. The scriptures imply that you have to kill it. You have to destroy the idol. We all know Abraham and Isaac's story, right? God made a promise. God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. Here comes Isaac as a representation of his promise kept. And suddenly Abraham trades in the devotion and love of God for the devotion and love of Isaac. And God has to rearrange his affections by saying, take your one and only son and sacrifice. And we know the rest of the story. Abraham got his thoughts right and God says, now I know. What's our version of that? What, what is it? It's not enough to just identify our idols. We've got to kill them. And so here, here's a little tip on knowing where our idols are. Wherever we have delayed obedience, that's an idol. I, I have, you know, I have many illustrations in my mind I don't feel free to share right now of people and faces and names of people who go, yeah, but. Yeah, but. And, and, and God isn't into yeah, but. That's not worship. Worship is all of life. Let me give you another illustration. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15, there's a story um, of Saul and Samuel, an interchange there that they have over Saul's idol. It's, it kind of sneaks up on you because you don't see it coming. It just looks like man's failure, but it really is this issue of replacing God. Let me give you some of the context. Israel demanded a king. They didn't want God to represent them. They wanted a man. They picked Saul. Saul had his issues. Saul was a nut job. He really was. And in the, in the midst of this story, God had commands for this earthly king for God's people. You need to do this. And one of his commands seems a little bit over the top. In chapter 15, verse 3, God says to Saul, Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women and children and infants and, and cattle and sheep and camels and donkeys. And you might go, whoa, whoa. Whoa, 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 God, that, that's the God nobody likes. There, there's a God who's just overkill. Like, couldn't he just do something else? But, but we don't understand how severe sin is, one, and we don't know how much God loves his people. You, you see a command like this, some extreme response to this sinful people around Israel, and you go, it's, over, it's overkill. But God was making a point. The purity of his people, the purity of his bride matters most. And I know your tendencies. I know your sinful flesh. You're going to walk right back into it and adopt that stuff. Kill everything. Obey me. Just just obey me. Now, is there anything confusing about that command in verse 3? Yes or no? You want me to give you the answer? Anything confusing about the command? No. It's crystal. It's crystal. Look at verse 8. After the fight, this is Saul now, he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people, he totally destroyed the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. 
these they were unwilling to destroy completely. Now, does that verse line up with verse 3? So that's called disobedience, right? Enter the prophet Samuel. Samuel has to be God's agent to, to straighten out Saul, to confront Saul. And by the way, this is an outline. If you ever want to go, how does sin happen? Where does sin come from and what does sin do? Right here in chapter 15, you see an outline of sin. It's always true and it always happens this way. The way God gives a command and then we disobey. So here's the, the first one was that verse 8. Saul didn't obey. Verse 13, Samuel comes to Saul reached and said, the Lord bless you. Now, this is Saul talking to Samuel. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. <laughs> Therein lies the second step of sin, the lie. I did it okay. In fact, I improved on God's command. God told me to wipe everything out, and I collected some good stuff because ultimately in the end run, I'm going to sacrifice it to God. It's going to be all good. So we got, the, we got the sin, we got the lie, and then the excuse. Verse 15, Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. So when he presents the lie, Samuel goes, well, then what, what is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? And how come I hear so many cattle if you obeyed God precisely? And Saul immediately turned on the soldiers. They did it. Sounds like Eve in the garden. They did it. But we did it for a good reason. Here's the justification. To sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we killed everything else. We're kind of good there. And I love the first word of verse 16. I don't know if your text says it, but I can just picture Samuel the prophet. He just says, stop. Shut up. Are you kidding me? God made it abundantly clear, and you now have rewritten his command to make yourself look better than God. Stop. Verse 19. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And 20, he says, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder. The best of what was devoted to God is in order to sacrifice unto the Lord your God at Gilgal. And then there's this verse we're all very familiar with. It's the punchline of God for rebellion and justification. And God says, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Verse 24. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Saul gets it now. Saul gets it that God wasn't interested in him rewriting the rules or somehow coming up with a better plan than the one God gave him. Saul gets it and goes, I've sinned against the Lord. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. And here's why. Here's his idol. Ready? This next sentence. I was afraid of the people. Saul's fundamental problem, his disobedience came because he wanted to please people. I, I don't have... At one glance, it's not an issue to have people enjoy your company and your presence and your conversations. That's not a bad thing. After the day's all done and people like you, that's a good thing. But if people are higher on your list of things to do and please than God, I know your issues. Your kids are probably out of control. Your marriage is probably out of control. Your relationships are out of control because you don't have the courage to speak the truth and love because people matter more than God. It's an idol. God cares deeply about obedience. 
He cares deeply about us following through. Obedience at all costs, by the way, when Jesus was dealing with this issue in, in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, he was talking specifically about the ways in which we fall, and he's addressing adultery. Adultery, this really bad ramification, ripple effect sin that destroys families and destroys men and destroys all sorts of stuff. Jesus comes on the, on the backside of it and says, listen, if you're in the midst of struggling with sin, it's better to lose your eye than your soul. If your right eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? If your right hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Jesus is not saying mutilate your flesh to deal with sin. He is simply making a statement. Kill sin at all costs. Do whatever you got to do to deal with sin. Jesus, God takes it very serious. And worship, this discussion, this implication of the gospel fundamentally is finding your satisfaction in Jesus Christ, him alone, always. That's the wrestling match. I had a guy stand here just last hour after the service. He goes, I struggle. Because when, when I'm at work and I do my thing, I'm not thinking thoughts about Jesus. Ooh, that was a little loud, wasn't it? I'm not thinking sounds, thoughts about Jesus. And I said, well, you're getting it confused. You're thinking all I have to do is formulate sentences and paragraphs in my mind about God stuff. And that swinging my hammer or doing drywall work doesn't glorify God. There isn't this duality of sacred and, 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 and then the, the spiritual things and the secular things. God cares about all that stuff. And you can do your job, you can do your business for the glory of God. All of life is for the glory of God. All of life is worship. Finding your satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone always is worship. So you can work for the glory of God and create for the glory of God and do business for the glory of God. You can raise kids for the glory of God and, and have hobbies and families and all that stuff. All of life is worship and God cares. He just cares deeply that we don't replace him. We don't trade him in for a good thing because he's the great thing. Uh, when I started this write-down notes, I thought, what, what, would be, what would be people's response to this idea? When you think of worship, you think what? Because that word is kind of taken hostage. It can mean lots of things. And for the most part, it's probably used to describe people when they sing or song styles or whatever. And I think there's a large part of that that is, that is true because there's a corporate aspect to worship. So redemption comes to people through the Savior, Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. We're changed people. The implications are that God's doing something with us corporately and worship is one of the results. Worship that obeys and lives for the glory of God all the time. But there is something unique about what we're doing right now. There's something different about why we gather. And I want to take some time and talk about that. In fact, in the, in the, uh, in the theology book, Mark Driscoll said this about this gathering. The mutual indwelling that God's people enjoy in corporate worship is essential to our growth personally, our joy collectively, and our witness culturally. God's people gather because in the depths of their regenerated nature, the Holy Spirit gives them deep desires to worship God with his people. John Piper, you might have heard of him. He said this, the Christian church was born in song. We are a singing people. And there is a reason for this. The reality of God and Christ and creation and salvation and heaven and hell are simply too great that we are not merely to think about it, but also feel deeply about it. 
So music and singing are necessary to Christian faith and worship for the simple reason that the realities of God in Christ, creation and salvation, heaven and hell, are so great that when we are, they are known truly and felt deeply, they demand more than discussion and more than analysis and description. They demand poetry and song and music. Singing is the Christian's way of saying God is so great that thinking will not suffice. There must be deep feeling. And talking will not suffice. There must be singing. I think Piper's right. There is more to what we do than just knowing that things are true. There is affections that come out of truth, church. There is responses that come out of truth. Just like all of life is worship. All of your life, obeying God and not trading in God for some small perverted version of God. Not trading out the great for the good. That kind of thing that living out there affects how you feel and affects what you do with your life. And this corporate thing, somehow truth has to affect us so that we don't just look like everybody else who knows nothing of God or grace, who knows nothing of salvation or sinners saved. It has to change how we feel. If this doesn't change how you feel, there's a problem. Would you agree? Would you agree? Yeah, it's got to change how we feel. The Apostle Paul agrees with it. If you would uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, if you have one of those Bibles we gave you, it's page 635. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul kind of describes for us worship. So let me give you a context in Ephesians, the total book kind of context. We have in the beginning, Paul reminding the church at Ephesus about the doctrines that we've been studying. The doctrine of salvation, of God's election, of God's choice, the doctrine of grace alone, that gives life to sinners, that doctrine. In chapter 4, he begins talking about implications. Because it's true, these things are true. And in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, Paul says, So therefore, right, live a life worthy of the calling. Have your life match your words. It's too easy to say you love. It's a whole other matter to live like you love. It costs you something. It looks like something and it feels like something. Live in a manner worthy of your calling. Verses 22 and 24, he talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new, a practical, active verb there. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, be imitators of God. In chapter 5, verse 3, he says, have no hint of sexual sin. He's just peppering the church at Ephesus with therefores, therefores. Because the gospel is true, because you've been set free, because it's authored of God, it comes to you, and it sets you on course to love him more. These are the things it looks like. And he gets to chapter 5, verse 18, and he talks about worship, what we do here. And he's not pulling punches. They're very specific. There are four like, characteristics or aspects or descriptions of worship here. Let me, let me read these verses and, and we'll dialogue about them. Starting in verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Four descriptions of worship from Paul's own mouth. One is that worship is the overflow of the Spirit's activity in your life. Like what we do. And we're going to get to the songs and hymns and spiritual songs. What we say to each other, what we remind each other of. But the essence of it, where it comes from, it's an overflow. It's an overflow of the, of the Spirit's work. So in other words, you could say this, worship, true worship, singing worship is not natural, it's supernatural. The Holy Spirit has to arrive to make it look like Paul is describing. He talks about it, uses the illustration about not being drunk with 
Not being drunk with wine as, as, as a description of what he's referring to in being filled. Now, I'm going to confess something. I've, I've never been drunk in my life. In fact, I've never tasted alcohol. I've never had wine or beer or anything. And somehow, I think early on it's because my dad was going to kill me. And later on, I just figured since the ball was rolling, I'd keep it going. So I've never tasted, I've never been drunk, but I have had a Percocet. Okay? That's good stuff. <laughs> It's, it's really good stuff. I can understand how people could get really hooked on that. But I hurt my hand or hurt my arm somewhere, and the doctor prescribed this Percocet. I, I can just describe it to you this way. I've never felt more at peace or more in, at one with the world than I was when I was on Percocet. I remember, like, falling into the couch and feeling like I was being absorbed. And my wife would say stuff, and i go, it's all good. It doesn't matter. I was just, that's what it was like to be controlled. Okay, Paul is using a like illustration to describe what it is to be affectionate for God when the Holy Spirit is the one changing you. Okay, so drunk, he says, don't be drunk, don't be controlled by something else, but be controlled by the Spirit. Be drunk with the Spirit. Be be filled up and overflowing with the Spirit's work in your life. So I can only assume that drinking might be somewhat like having a controlled substance in your body, like Percocet, but I would think that that affects you. Affects what you think about, what you do, what you don't do, how you feel about what you do and don't do, and so does the Spirit of God. He affects your will to obey, overflowing. Like I just, I just spent time with Jesus, and I can sense the Spirit convicting me about sin, and I'm not burdened by the sin. I'm freed from the sin, and now I want to obey Him. That liberty feeling, you know, like before you come to Christ, when you're absolutely certain that your your life and your behavior is going to de- like be a destiny of hell. And as soon as you find out that the gospel through Christ liberates you and brings freedom to you, like you can't believe how good it is, then the first time in your life you're expressing devotion words, you come to worship and you cry all the time, that's coming from your affections. That's overflow of the Spirit, right? Yeah. Well, we interact in this place, okay? <laughs> it's overflow. He's got me. It affects my will to obey. I hate sin. I hate the sin that hurts him. I love him. It, it affects my feelings. It affects my feelings. Like I, when I was a kid, you could poke me in the eye. I'd never cry. I mean, really. wasn't in me. I, can't, I cry at everything. I cry at commercials. I cry at everything. God has broken my heart. And I'll tell you the number one reason why. Over 50 years, he's let me see how bad of a sinner I am. And every time something comes up, I'm convinced I don't deserve it. I always am convinced I shouldn't be here. I don't deserve it. This is only you. It's only you. It's only you. That's where the affections come from. That's where they, they're, they're deep in your soul. It's something more than just thinking about it, church. It's more than thinking about the gospel and knowing the answers to the questions. It's more than saying, oh, we did the doctrine series and I have the notebook. It has to affect your heart and your mind. It has to affect your affections. We do it. Like, we're real good worshipers until we talk about God. I'm so excited the football season's on. I mean, I prayed so hard for that strike then. Now I got something to do. But you know, you've been to those places. Absolute insanity is justifiable because you're affectionately loving your team. We do it. We're wired to do it. But somehow, um, there is a big distance between I'm saved, I can't believe God loves me, I'm broken all the time, and then this journey that Christians take where they gather more and more information and they're told somewhere or feel somewhere that it shouldn't affect their affections and now you can't impress them at all with God. 
He's predictable. You got him sorted out. You've done that devotion. He doesn't move your heart. He doesn't break your heart. He doesn't warm your heart. If truth doesn't affect how you feel, I doubt if it's real. Paul uses the description or the example of don't be drunk with wine, but be overflowed with the Spirit. It affects your will to obey. It affects your emotions to feel. He goes on and talks about this. Worship is from the heart. You see it? He says in verse 19, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. In your heart. It comes from the heart. It's sincere. One of the one of the great things about our faith is that God knows exactly what you're thinking all the time. You don't have to worry about putting it together in paragraphs so that God, this huge God that's so different than you, can understand how you feel. Like, you don't have to worry about, God, you don't get it. Let me, it's like me talking to my kids. Sometimes I'm not certain I understand what they mean or how they feel about something. I'm stuck between language and lack of knowledge. God doesn't struggle with that. God knows intimately where you're at and what you're doing and the influences in your life. And so worship as far as the scriptures are concerned, is from the heart. It's sincere. God sees the heart. It's truth motivated for certain. Like you can't worship what you don't know. Fair? We get done with the doctrine series and we talk about God's effort towards you in spite of your war with him. There's a so what to that. It's not just a well. I can't believe it. Out of all the phrases that... that Jesus decided to use for that story. He called it good news. It's good news, church. Showing your face a little bit. It's good news, church. You're a puke, and God saved you. It's good news. It is true. Worship is from the heart, truth motivated. You can't worship what you don't know. You mean it and you feel it. And let me just tell you something. For those of you who are going, all right, Tim, you've just talked about all this truth affecting how you feel, and I'm having a bad month. I'm having a bad year. I'm having a bad life. Like, I remember what it was like to believe, but I show up in worship and I feel bad most of the time because all I do is spend my time thinking, I remember when I cared more. I remember when the fire burnt hotter. I remember when I loved and longed for it. I remember when I couldn't wait to get here, and it's not like that anymore. And so most of my worship is just sadness and grieving. Let me just encourage you, church, okay? That also is worship. Because at the end of that thought and the end of that sentence is you declaring out loud, I, nothing else satisfies. Jesus, you're the only thing that matters. I'm, I'm grieving my life because I want you. I'm grieving my story because I have excluded you, and I do want you. Sadness and worship works for God. Sadness says you want him in spite of what you've been chasing, in spite of what you've been doing. You want him. It affects how you feel. And even if it's not like, oh, my gosh, you're on the mountaintop experience. But maybe it's at the bottom. You're going, I don't know anything more than grief right now. Not grief for things happening to you, but grief over your choices to walk away from your first love. That kind of grief is also worship because in, in its essence is a believer recognizing his longing for the only one that satisfies. Amen? That's worship from the heart. He says also in verse 19 that worship is to the Lord. It is God and Christ-centered. Our worship, our everything relates to God. It's done for God. It's aware of his presence in this place. And everything he hears and sees, he delights in. I can't get away from this thought that God inhabits the praise of his people, that God shows up. 
Like, how do you invite God to a place like this? Now, he's omnipresent, but where does he smile? Where does he smile? When sinners stuck in the fog of sin and I can't, people who are stuck in this limited understanding believe truth, right? Believe that God is sovereign, believe that God is doing good things, that he's building his kingdom and the gates of hell won't stand against it. Those people, when they worship God, he shows up and smiles. And that, there's nothing else to say about that. There's no other perspective. You know when you know. Last hour, we had an amazing time in here. And I could just feel the presence of the Lord. I could just feel it like people are loving him. People are getting him. And I got to imagine that God likes to hang out in places like that. He likes to bless people like that. So worship is, is obviously to the Lord, but surprisingly enough, in the beginning of verse 19, worship is to each other. Speak to one another in spiritual songs and hymns. The reality of it is singing is a significant activity of the church. We should want to sing to each other. We're reminding each other these things we declare are absolutely eternally true, that they're more true than anything you can put your hands on and touch. That's why we sing to each other. We remind each other of those truths. Some of the songs we sing are like, oh, worship the king. All hail the name of Jesus, right? All these things are reminders, like we're looking at each other. I know some worship environments who they've been constructed in such a way that the church looks at each other when they sing. They're reminded that, hey, this is not only going up, it's going to each other as a reminder. Worship is from the heart. It's the overflow of the spirit. It is, it is to the Lord, but it's to each other. Being together and singing, it intensifies our emotions for God. It communicates our testimony to God and about God with this corporate amen all the time. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. It's always true. That, that's what worship is, but I'm, I've taken the liberty to write a short list of what it isn't. And remember the beginning of the message I told you when's the last time we were offended? <laughs> I think we're getting to that part, okay? Um, <laughs> And I, I said this last hour, so I'll say it again. Do you know that I love you? <laughs> Do you? I'm not, I'm not kidding. When I say, I, it would be so much easier just to make you feel good about yourself and have you leave than it is to say the truth. But there are things that, that I notice, are things that I think the Spirit of God has convicted me on that we got to talk about, things that worship isn't. Because I think uh, worship, like any obedience, you have to fight for it. And we get lazy. And so I want to just give you a, a short list. Here's the first one. Worship is not optional. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer is making it very clear that one of the so what's to kingdom life in kingdom people is that you don't forsake the assembly. Neil and I sit around and talk all the time about the health of our body and, and how are we doing. And, you know, we try to measure events and things we put on to, to communicate truth and to bless your hearts. And sometimes we're convinced it's, it's true. Our church is twice as big as the attenders. The problem is you only come 50% of the time. Easter is more like who we are than now because there's other things going on, right? There's other things to do. There are places to go that are more important. There are, there are things that, you know, like you had a rough week, you had a bad Saturday, and you tap out. And, and the imperative in Hebrews 10 isn't like, it's not soft, it's absolute. Don't, is the writer's comment. Don't forsake the assembly. As some are in the habit of doing. So, remember I love you. I, I think we're weak at this part. I think we are. It's not optional. 
Worship isn't about you, if you want to write that one down. Um, it's my privilege, my responsibility to oversee the worship, the, the corporate gathering moments that we do. And I, I will confess something. There are people who do it way better than I would all day, twice on Sunday, man. They, they know stuff I don't know, and they've been places I haven't been, and uh, whatever. Um, but I'm not confused on, on what we need to talk about and what we need to say. And what I, what I get in emails and what I get from comments is complaining and fussy. You know, custom fit this thing for me. I got a, I got a this is going to blow your mind. I, I got an email one time talking about the worship service. And, and uh, I, can't, I can't say the words because they're curse words that were wrote in the email. But basically said, cut out the BS. Get to, the, get to the point. Just give me this thing and don't give me anything else. Now, I don't know if he's a believer. I don't know anything. Um, but fundamentally, that experience happens too often. People that complain that it isn't quite this, or it's too cold that, or it isn't this, or it's not comfortable that. I went to dinner with Tom on uh, Tuesday. We were at a restaurant, and I had a weird moment of just sitting back and observing, because Tom knew everybody in the place. <laughs> he did. It was like cheers. Hey, Bob, how are you? He's giving waitresses hugs and saying hi, and he goes, well, that, he's telling stories, and he goes, how's the kids, and how's the car? Did you get the new? He knows everything. And, and at fundamentally, at that moment, I go, we are so different, because that's the exact reason why I wouldn't go into a place. I wouldn't want anybody to talk to, nobody to know, and, and he's getting really connected. He, like, he's deep. He's got a seat. He's probably got a plaque over his seat, something. Um, but I, that's the exact opposite of what I would do. I wouldn't go anywhere because somebody knew me. And I thought to myself, that's a great illustration of, of the, the customizing that goes on in church. People want the right sound. They want the right feel. They want the right seat. They want the right temperature. They want the right songs. They just they do. And, and you have no problem telling us about it. That's not what worship is, people. Our job is not to custom fit a perfect pair of shoes for you. Ours is to listen to God and lead. And, 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 and with our limited abilities. We're trying as hard as we can, and, and this is where I love you. You can stop your whining. You can own up to the responsibilities and call of the gospel to obey the scriptures and to love one another and remind each other that it isn't about you and be a good example and a testimony of the world, and we'll do our best we can. We'll grow together. We'll do all that stuff. But, but that part about it being for you, that's got to stop. There's another truth about worship i got to tell you about, and it gets better. <laughs> worship should not be taken lightly. So the, the routine, and I, I uh, did ministry in Chicago for 13 years. The Midwest is different than the West, and I've told myself for the 14 years I've been here at East Valley, now Redemption, that things are just different in the culture. But I don't even like that. That sounds like a, like, like a weakness to me. Yeah, just because the Bible Belt culturally cares about these things and they don't do it for the right reason, but this whole coming late thing and leaving early, it's not right. Now, I, I understand that there might be some people here who don't know Jesus and fundamentally are just here to hear something because they've invited and they want out. I'm okay with that. But there's a lot of believers who go, no, this is all I need. And you rob each other of the communicable, like this is true and we love it together and we feel it together. When you walk out, I, I, you're not going to like this, but I sit in the back and I watch. And when there's a max, mass exit out the doors because you think communion's over and it's time to leave, that isn't a sign of health, folks. It's just not. 
It's a sign of either you've lost your way, loss of focus, loss of devotion, or something worse. So, um, again, I'm Mr. Happy today. Worship isn't optional. It's not about you, and it shouldn't be taken lightly. Spectating, standing back and watching worship happen as if it's a one-dimensional image, like watching TV. If you're a Christian, mm -mm, you're invited in. You're invited in. I want to leave you with an example of what I'm talking about, this worship. And I've, I've said this before. It'll be short. It's a, it's a story that we all are aware of, and it's the story of David. Of David, um, let me give you the bad news. He's an adulterous murderer. Of the good news, God said, this guy really likes me. He really loves me. In fact, he has a heart after me. And, and this David, who was installed by God in, um, as God's choice for a king, not the people's choice, was, was, you know, the Bible says he was ruddy and handsome in appearance, but he wasn't anything special. He was a shepherd boy when he was picked, right? And you know the tension that existed between the people's king, Saul, trying to kill him and the years that he waited in order to be installed. The first thing David thought about when God said, time to go, he thought about the glory of God. He thought about the worship of God, and he said, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant, let's bring it home. And you know the story, so David and all the throngs go and get the Ark, and they're coming back, and Uzzah reaches out when the, when the ox cart stumbles, and he tries to hold the Ark up, and God kills Uzzah dead. The text tells us that, that David was angry with the Lord. I don't know what the anger, where it was placed. I don't know if he thought, God, that's overkill. He was just trying to help. But God was making a point. What I say matters. Obedience matters. And you are way, way too sinful to be casual with me. So David, scared, freaked out, takes the ark and gives it to Obed-Edom. It's in his house. He goes back to Jerusalem and stews, I guess. Wondering what happened and how did this happen and what do I do about it? And he hears, he hears about the blessing going on at Obed-Edom's house. Like God's doing stuff. Like the glory of God is showing up. And he goes, oh yeah, that's what this is about. So David sorts out his thinking, goes back to Obed-Edom, gets the ark and he's on his way. He takes six steps out of Obed's house. He says, time, time to worship. And he builds an altar and he sacrifices. Sacrifice was never meant to deal with man's sin. It's meant to expose the fact that he is sinful. Like there has to be death for my behavior. There has to be death for my shortcomings and my sin. And then they worship. Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem is 10 miles. We don't know anything more than what the text says, but it says that David danced and worshiped mightily that whole way. 10 miles. There's some things that, that uh, stand out to me. One would be that God blesses radical worship. So just like Obed-Edom got the blessing, just like David and his people got the blessing when he got his mind right, just like we can have the blessing when we focus on the, on the, the work of God, the glory of God, and the gospel, um, that blessing's for us. The other truth, if, if you know the story, David's wife noticed the king marching in town, and uh, he'd taken off his kingly robe. He was dancing around in his underwear in front of the slave girls, and, and uh, he looked like an idiot. And his wife said to him, you just, you were very unbecoming today. You, were, you just looked like a fool today. And the, and the reality of radical worship is, is that self-centered hearts always mock it. They always do. God is worthy of it. I know that. And then ultimately, undignified worship is another way of showing that we're not just content to think these things about God. We feel them about God. 
Would you agree with that statement? It isn't enough just to know that they're true. Feel that they're true. What is undignified worship? I'm not suggesting you strip down to your underwear and dance. Um, in fact, I would advise against it. But somehow David had no thought of himself or others when he was expressing his feelings for his God. Somehow it was okay for the dignified position of a king to look undignified when it was dealing with worshiping his real king. So sometimes worship, undignified worship, looks like, like uh, supply, like your hands are raised and you're going, God, you're, you're my source, you're my provision, you're my hope, you're everything. And sometimes it can look like you're on your face, you're on your knees, right? Because you're so overwhelmed with your sin in light of his holiness. And, and sometimes... You know, it's always a worship is to an audience of one. It's not looking around and going, what is everybody else doing? What's the mood of the room? I'll go the way of the masses. I do think radical worship, the kind that God shows up and smiles on, is the kind that is uh, enduring, the kind that worships with all its might. I'm not suggesting 10-mile worship, but maybe two-mile worship. Maybe we could love him more than we do. So the theme today was, was the so what to the gospel means worship. Worship is all of life. Fundamentally, it's obedience. No other gods before him. I do love him. Worship, is, as far as this, cor- this corporate context, is that it involves truth about God and feelings about God to God with each other that looks radical. The right response to the greatness of God. I told you in the front end that I was willing to risk offending you, but my prayer is that what you heard today was what I prayed in the back, that the Holy Spirit would just apply it, like personally, like specifically. Because I know some things apply and some things don't apply to you because you're not wrestling with that. But maybe in the future you will. My, my prayer is that we would look like a place God would stop. So I don't know what the folks over in the conference center are doing right now. I don't know what you're feeling right now. But would you wrestle with the thought, is your worship appropriate to the size of your God? Is, are you a spectator when we come together to say amen about God? Or maybe your, maybe your truth, maybe the truth that you believe can affect your affections. And I think that would be something God would honor. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for um, the patience you show us. And thank you, God, for your uh, saving work in our lives. Thank you for the promise that you made that you're going to change us and conform us to the image of Jesus and nothing's going to stop that. So we believe in it. But we confess right now these things that we talked about today can be struggles for us. We can replace you with things that you give and we have idols. We can think that it's okay just to have the facts about who and what you've done without having affect our obedience and our affections. God, would your spirit press on us right now? Would you uh, bless us with your presence and smile in this place today, we pray. Amen.